Ryan, sometimes I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. And this is Donnie Darko. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Wake up, Donnie. Imaginary. I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. I haven't seen stuff. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. <laughs> I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Every living thing follows along set path, and if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry, you got away with it. What is going to happen? I only have a few days left before they catch me. gonna stop you should already know that hello and welcome to another episode of bella lugosi's undead i'm aj i'm spooky ryan and today we are talking about one of our weirdly halloween centric faves i had forgotten that this was a halloween movie to be 100 percent honest until the most recent viewing yeah yeah i mean that's the the kind of the cool thing about the movie is it ends on uh, it ends on halloween which is coming to the end of the world for, for Mr. Donnie Darko. <laughs> yeah, so we are talking about Donnie Darko, the 2001 film from Richard Kelly, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Patrick Swayze, a whole bunch of famous people, Jenna Malone, Seth Rogen's first movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and probably above all, actually, probably above all, we talk about the Drew Barrymore of it. Uh, because uh, it, it is hugely important, and we'll get more into that as we discuss the history of the film. Oh, very cool. I'm excited to dig into that. So do you want me to do the 90-second? The yeah, let's go ahead and just jump straight into the 90-second recap. Uh, Ryan, whenever you are ready, we can go ahead and get this thing kicked off. All right, ready, set, go. Okay, so there's a giant uh, 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 thing that hits the roof, and it destroys it, and... Everyone's like, oh my goodness, Donnie's going to be dead, but he was, like, sleepwalking again, and he was outside, and everyone, and he's starting to get these visions that the end of the world is going to come, and there's this bunny rabbit, and he is going, and basically he is, um, you know, going to high school, meeting these people, there's this cute girl that comes in the class, Drew Barrymore is, like, sitting next to the cutest boy, and she's next to Donnie, they end up sort of falling in love, Donnie is, like, going to a psychologist because he has paranoid schizophrenia and everyone's worried about him he axes his high school while he's having some sort of psychotic break and causes a huge flood um and it turns out that he like burns down this pedophile's thing there's this huge through line of like this like weird like cultish like tony robbins-esque like speaker that like talks about like fear and what was it love i guess is the other spectrum and he like throws a tantrum about that and tells the teacher to stick it up her ass, but, like, I forget the word she used. That would have been a better opener. (laughs) (laughs) You go, you go, you get 15 seconds. Okay, okay. Okay, okay, so then he goes and, like, basically falls in love with this girl, and they fall falling in love, and then it's uh, Halloween, and he, and there's, like, a weird lady, and they, is trying to solve this mystery of what's going on with time travel, 
And basically, he uh, his girlfriend dies, and he shoots this guy in the face, and he's like, the only way that I could save everybody's life and be the superhero that he thinks he is is by going back in time and dying by the plane thing that falls to the sky. And the reason that they couldn't figure out where the plane, because it came from the fucking future. All right. <laughs> All right, so Ryan missed uh, the 30 or 90 seconds by a little bit. But I think that also speaks a lot to this movie. Uh, I, I know that most people like Donnie Darko, but it is undeniably a little bit all over the place, a little weird, a little pseudo-intellectual at times. Sure. But ultimately, I think that Donnie Darko represents a really interesting turning point for the kind of horror films that we sometimes want to discuss. Because yeah. unlike a lot of the other horror films that we're going to cover on this podcast, even the very next one is going to be full of blood and gore and death. Yeah. Daddy Darko is not that. It's very no. much part sci-fi, part psychological, introspective film. And because of that, it gets a very, very weird, but also gives us the opportunity to see a different side of horror. And it is, I think, a horror film at its heart. Yeah, and in, in, a weird, in a weird way, it's kind of a coming-of-age film, too. Like, Oh, yeah, 100%. It's got, it's got heavy, heavy coming-of-age themes. Yeah. So Richard Kelly, the guy who directed it and also wrote the screenplay, it, uh, it, he was heavily influenced by Spielberg. And if you look uh, at it in an odd way, a lot of Diane Darko is based off of things in, like, E.T., for example, yeah. the kids ride around their bikes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's a very strict obsession with time and becoming obsessive to the point where it takes you away from other people in your life, a la yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's sure. a lot of DNA in this movie that feels like it is Spielbergian or Amblin style. Sure, yeah. But then it just shifts it just a little bit away where mm -hmm. it, it does create a unique feel. I think that a big part yeah. of that comes from the music and the choices mm -hmm. there. I think that there's just oh, even the Drew Barrymore being in the movie is an mm -hmm. homage to the Spielbergness. So sure. there's yeah a lot going on here for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this movie. I guess I'll share like. <laughs> so my my mother watched this movie and she was like, I don't want you. To, I didn't want you to see that movie because you remind me of Donnie Darko. I'm like, Mom. <laughs> Like, he, he took an axe to his school, he's a paranoid schizophrenic, and he killed someone. Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a little... <laughs> it, it's, it's fair. Uh, it, it is a little much to compare you so, directly to Donnie Darko. I will say, his, like, rant that he'll sometimes go on with, like, about the Smurfs, like, that is absolutely something I would do. So I kind of get what he's saying, like... I'll just, like, I'll get hyper-fixated on something and talk about it forever, but, like, <laughs> but, like, I'm not gonna, like, I don't know, I don't know, shoot someone because they ran over my girlfriend, like, you know? Well, I would so. hope not, but also, <laughs> I, I understand the idea of being concerned about your son, just in general. I think that's what a lot of this movie hinges on, is that mother-son yeah. relationship, and it's a yeah. mom trying to create a better life for her son, who she doesn't yeah. fully understand, Obviously, yeah. we have the added layer of he is a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and is yeah. sleepwalking and seeing a literal monster ghost from the future. Yeah. But <laughs> at the same time, she's not aware she's in a movie where that's happening. She's just yeah. seeing her son struggle and trying yeah. to find a way to help him. And I think that's a big part of this movie. And I would like to point out that the worst things that happen to Donnie happen when she is not there to literally take mm, care of him. That's so, true. There's a lot about the mother-son relationship of Donnie Darko that I think rings true yeah. to moms. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time I see this movie, I, there's a couple portions that really touch me. Like, um, when he says, like, how does it feel having a, like, having, I think he's, like, a crazy person as a son, and she's like, it's wonderful. Like, I cry every single time, because, like, I yeah. resonate with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say it's just full of wonderful lines like that. Yeah, and then like the the relationship between he and Gretchen is such a like secure relationship. Like she finds it just as funny that he like trashes like the love and hate like Tony Robbins guy. You know what I mean? But then he's like ranting about it, and instead of being instead of like either egging him on or like invalidating him, she's like, "Hey, hey, what's going on? 
You know what I mean? Like, she recognizes yep. that something was, yep. like, wrong with him. It wasn't really about this dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, and she was able to recognize that and, like, try to de-escalate his, like, you know, his rant that he's going on. And then there's another portion where she's getting made fun of for the, the school and he comes out and he's trying to, like, comfort her and they share their first kiss when, like, you know, she wanted it to be reminded of that the world is beautiful. Like, it's just, like, they're both there for each other in such, like amazing ways like it's such a like uh, secure relationship that's developing and i do think it's another big part of this movie that really does work for me is that the, the at the end of the day it is about finding empathy for people and yeah. ultimately it is an empathetic choice that donnie has to make to yeah. quote unquote save the world and yeah. even though it means sacrificing himself in a way it, it yeah. is ultimately the right choice, and mm-hmm. it does not diminish the role that his life will have on other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he sort of makes that final decision that, like, him his life ending is makes the world better than him being in it, which is, like, selfless and also really, like, dark and nihilistic. Like, but, Oh, like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's pretty interesting it's it's an interesting movie for sure but it's very emotional it's a very emotional movie which is like interesting because like spielberg is like hope and optimism right <laughs> like this is like a little bit different from that <laughs> yeah there's something about the gen z of it all where mm-hmm. the person who's making the movie comes from a different generation than spielberg right. and so their approach to similar material has a darker tinge to it there's obviously the Reaganism that's running through the film. I mean, sure, at the time yeah. when this movie's released and when it's being made, Reaganism is only 10, 12 years removed. So it is something, yeah. it'd be like if you or I were to go make a movie today, it would be uh-huh. about the Obama era instead yeah. of being about, oh, you know, the modern era. <laughs> and there's a different Can feel. Can make movies about us easier, simpler time at this point? Like, I feel like the world... <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, right? So, but that's that's kind of my point, is that it was looking back at an era that 80s movies, there's not like a look back to 80s nostalgia yet. That was not really yeah. a thing other than... Yeah. I believe that he, like, he cited that Wedding Crashers had... Or not Wedding Crashers, The Wedding Singer had already come out but other than that it wasn't really like a period piece 80s film yet like we're used to today it wasn't like you know there's a stranger things and it and all these movies every every year there's about five (laughs) yeah now we're at that point but (laughs) that was definitely not something that he was concerned about at the time instead he was trying to set it in a place at a time that would make the characters just aware of their surroundings and i think that that's helpful the other thing is yeah. Richard Kelly is only 25 years old when he starts directing oh, this wow. movie. So for him, this is at he's about the same age as Donnie is wow. when the movie is taking place in theory. Donnie's 16, he was like 13 or 14. So wow. it is about a kid growing up. It's what he knows the best is that 80s window. Yeah. And yeah. as a result, yeah, there's a lot going on there. There's also a lot in terms of change that's going on. At one point during the movie, we see a debate between Dukakis and George H.W. Yeah. Bush. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Also of note that, you know, Kelly is coming into this kind of as a as an outsider. He's not somebody that was a known commodity really in the industry yet, and sure. he was working as Weird Al's, like, personal assistant at the time. Okay. That's like, an interesting like, job. At least that, that, that's what he says. He just said, like, armfuls of like props, like <laughs> props and food. Basically, what, yeah. what, what, what Kelly has said is, I would be like, yeah, I was running around getting him his lunch, and then I would be writing Donnie Darko while I was in between gigs. <laughs> so funny. he'd put in an eighteen-hour day and then write his screenplay. So yeah. that is kind of the world he's living in. So yeah, let's go ahead and wow. kind of jump into it. So uh, Richard Kelly, the guy who ends up directing and writing this film, he's yeah. inspired heavily by his hometown. He grew up in Virginia, and while he was growing up in Virginia, he was living in a suburb, a piece of ice fell off of a plane and went through somebody's house when the boy was at home. So wow. right there, it's a pretty... So it's like literally like yeah. out of his life. <laughs> exactly. And his question is, oh, how would you feel if you're that person? Is the world out to get you? There's something else there. So he kind of begins to 
imagine what that kid's life would be like. He then says, okay, maybe ice is not the thing to go. Maybe it needs to be a piece of the airplane. But if it's a piece of the airplane, what happened to the plane? And, it inter- and then it causes him to introduce this mystery time travel element to the movie that was not there initially when he started writing it. Uh, it's something why it kind of like feels like written in, right? Doesn't it? A little bit. I mean, there's at the end of the day, this is a first-time screenplay. It is really smart. Sure. Uh, the one he yeah. turns in is about 145 pages long, which if yeah. you – the traditional guess is that for every page of screenplay you write, that is one minute of the movie. So you're talking about a two-hour, 20-minute movie. Different versions of this film do exist. There is a two-hour, 20-minute version of this film wow. that's the director's cut. But that, there's not many movies that have that extra length. So the one that we end up seeing in theaters is the one that gets trimmed down a little bit. But basically, as soon as the screenplay hits, everybody's kind of in. It's unique. It's Twilight zone It's got the Amblin influence. And that makes people very excited about what this guy could do. What's, what's like, out at this time where everyone's like, yes, this is just what we need right now? Like, <laughs> Well, so it's the early 2000s. And so the Sundance Film Festival is still kind of the place to get discovered. Sure. Uh, one of the things that, like, the when it debuts at Sundance, the big movie that year would end up being Memento in 2001. So yeah. there was a search okay. for, like, cutting-edge weird films. Yeah. In ni- 99 itself, the year that they are pitching this movie around to try to get it made, you've got yeah. The Matrix comes out. You've got Eyes uh, Wide Shut. You've got okay. this darkly dystopian... Uh, I mean, Blair Witch Project is out. You're looking okay. for these high-concept, different huh. scripts that represent outsiders. And yeah. this is probably the peak of being an outsider in Hollywood helps... Or being an outsider to Hollywood helps Hollywood grow interested in your stuff. Huh. And as a result, this movie kind of caught on really quickly. A big mm. person who's actually important in the development of this movie, who's not actually in the movie is Jason Schwartzman. Okay. So Jason Schwartzman was best known for Rushmore at this point in time. But he comes from a very, very famous family, the Coppolas. Okay. (laughs) They are the ones who made, you know, The Godfather. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola makes The Godfather. And then all of him and his kids start making all these other movies. So, like, Sofia Coppola would later make Lost in Translation. Uh, oh wow! This is huge, huge. <laughs> Nicholas Cage is part of the Coppola family. Like, there's really? A, yes, yeah. He he changed yeah. his last name from Coppola to hide the fact that he was a Coppola, and <laughs> they ended up being a dominant force through the 70s and 80s in film culture. But anyway, so Schwartzman is interested in this film and kind of gets attached as a potential star. And at the same time, a bunch of other people like Joel Schumacher and Sidney Pollack are circling the project. And these are like yeah. big directors. I mean, Schumacher is probably unfortunately known by most people today as the guy who directed Batman and Robin. But he also <laughs> directed he also directed some movies in the eighties like Flatliners that actually would have lined up pretty well with this film. You would also Pollock, I mean, directed Best Picture winners. So wow. we're talking about, like, real talent was circling this. And Richard yeah. Kelly's like, I am not going to let this go. And when Schwartzman, wow. si- yeah. and when Schwartzman <laughs> signs on, it actually draws attention. Everyone's like, oh, there's a real potential future star in this movie. And yeah. this script is good. Who else might be interested in coming to it? And the person who ends up being brought in is Drew Barrymore. So Drew wow. Barrymore gets introduced into the fray and herself is from one of the famous Hollywood families. Her grandfather, yeah. her great grandfather are like some of the first big actors in Hollywood ever. Wow. Going back decades. Like we're talking about like in the 1800s on Broadway and oh, in, in New this York. Movie, like this was, I wonder it was Richard just like fucking shitting himself. Like, uh, yes. I mean, it's like... basically his whole thing <laughs> is he's like, I kind of yeah. look into this thing where all of a sudden I have two of the big families in the history of Hollywood, simultaneously right. helping me get through the system. I know. It's like, okay, I wrote this screenplay that means a lot to me. Now, like, now it's a big fucking deal. Like, I can't fuck this up now. Like, 
I mean, yeah, that's 100% the way that he, he frames it in a lot of the interviews is he's like, I... So when you say not letting it go, like, did he want to direct it? Is that what he was talking about? Yes, he, he wow. would not let other people direct that's his ballsy. movie. Which, to be fair, <laughs> there's a lot of cases, if you look through Hollywood history, of somebody yeah. saying, I'm going to bet on myself to be the person sure. who brings this to life. And as a result, yeah. it launches their career. Probably yeah. the most famous person to do that is Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. They wanted yes. other people to play Rocky. He said, no, I yeah. play Rocky or this movie doesn't get made. Yep. It wins Best Picture, and he has a career for 50 years. Yeah, Richard Kelly is just kind of like, this is my ticket. The way you get into Hollywood is to write your own path. And yeah. so that's what he did. And Crazy. he meets with Drew Barrymore. She's right. on the set at the time of Charlie's Angels. They come in, they come <laughs> like into right the... now she's like fucking huge. This is like peak Drew Barrymore. Like <laughs> Yes, this is like one hundred percent peak Drew Barrymore. She's yeah. in a thousand things and she looks yeah. at it, she goes, I wanna be in this movie and they're like, Okay, this is the role we want you to play. She's like, Great. Yeah. I have one week where I can film this movie before I go make <laughs> a different movie. And they're like, Okay. Um we're not sure we can accommodate that. She's like, Well, if you make it with me and let my production company make it and I'm in this movie I will give you four and a half million dollars to make this movie. Holy fuck. Okay. And so it's like, like that escalates so quickly. Like, yeah. And so they're like, Hey Jason, are you able to make this window? And he's like, I'm committed to another movie in that week that she's available. And they're like, well shit. Bye Jason. We gotta go fight somebody else. <laughs> and wow. so that's how we end up with Jake Gyllenhaal as Donnie Darko is that oh my God, Schwartzman crazy. can't make that week. Yeah. And they have to have Drew Barrymore to fund the movie. Wow. And so the choices See, get Jane made. Jane Hall kills that role, too. It's such a good play on that role. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, literally, Kelly, they start auditioning everybody in Hollywood who's, like, of age who could be in this movie. I know a big name that got thrown around at the time was Patrick Fugit, who's best known for being the young boy in Almost Famous, who's okay. the Rolling Stone writer. And, okay. yeah, when Gyllenhaal walked in, they said he was, like, a 19-year-old, super emo. He looked like Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, just, like, what they imagined does. he would look like. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this is it. This is who it is. And yeah. Gyllenhaal's always had this weird darkness to him as a performer. He's yeah. dreamy and he's boyish, but also he seems like an older soul. And yeah. he ends up being the perfect choice. And mm. then... He's like, hey, by the way, since you're going to cast me, you should cast my sister as my sister in the movie. And Maggie Gyllenhaal gets cast in the movie for wow. a couple of reasons. She was already kind of an actress that people were aware of anyway. Yeah. But it gave them the ability to just be like, hey, we don't even have to create a fake chemistry with the older sister and right. have it be you're competitive. You're older sister. <laughs> exactly, right? It's amazing yeah, you, how... Like, hereditary, you don't have to, like, go out and, like, hang out with this person you don't know to pretend like your brother and sister. Like... <laughs> Exactly, right? And then <laughs> right. now that you've suddenly... And Gyllenhaal had already been a lead of a couple movies as well. Uh, have you sure. ever seen October Sky? I've never seen it, no. Okay, so October Sky is the movie where he is wants to be a rocket scientist, and him and his friends begin building fake rockets, and then he ends up going to NASA and winning a prize. And it was actually based on a true story, and it was a big deal, and his character in that movie goes on to work at NASA. So... He's already loved this movie. People are aware of who he is. And they're like, okay, so we've got Drew Barrymore on one side helping fund this project. We've got Jake Gyllenhaal's in it, Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it. And all of a sudden, the names start pouring in. They get Patrick Swayze. Jenna Malone signs on. And Jenna Malone had been in a handful of big movies. You've got Catherine Ross from The Graduate comes out of retirement to come be in this movie and be the therapist. Yeah. So and they start people are begging to be in this movie because they think this could be the next smash hit, this big indie wow. hit. I mean, we're only yeah. seven years after Pulp Fiction by the time this movie sure. releases. Weird sci-fi movies are in. The Matrix has just yeah. released. These people are excited to get involved. And so you, that's how you get Seth Rogen in his first role. Alex uh -oh. Greenwald, who plays the bully was in the band Phantom Planet with Jason Schwartzman. So he already knew about this project before when his best friend was attached. Uh, James Dubai, or, yeah, sorry, James Dubal, who plays Frank, said it sounded like a Twilight Zone episode. And so they all just want to get in line. Yeah. That's crazy, dude. That's, like, crazy how quickly it, like, caught on. Yeah, exactly. So that's just kind of like this weird 
thing about how the movie kind of starts kicking off. I think this is a good time for us to take a second, and we never talked about how we both got into this movie, because I think that's a huge part of the lore of Die Darko, is how you first come yeah. to see it. So, how did you yeah. first get into Die Darko, Ryan? Um, I mean, I don't know. I definitely didn't see it in 2001, because I was like, what? Like, you were like 11 years old. Like 10, 10 yeah. 11 years yeah. old, so I definitely did not. I think, like... I think, like, a lot of the, like, smaller horror movies that I've seen, I think just, like, enough edgy people talked about it that I was like, all right, I'll watch it. And then I watched it, and I, like, loved it. Like, I loved, I loved, like, the, like, the mother relationship. I love that he, like, I just love, the love story is, like, what really gets me for this movie. Like, I, I, like, love that story so much, but... He also does remind me a little bit of myself in some ways, you know what I mean? So, and I was like talking to my mom, like ecstatically about it. And she's like, yeah, that's what she said. Like, I really didn't want you to watch that movie. (laughs) So I think I was like in high school probably when I first saw it. (laughs) I know that I was in high school the first time I saw it. I 100% saw it on the recommendation either from IMDb or somewhere else. It's one of those things that... You seek it out because you're a younger movie fan. All of a sudden you hear, like you said, through the grapevine, hey, this movie's pretty cool. You should check it out. And then the first time you see Nine Darko, it is like such a mindfuck. Like, it really screws up your head for a while. And you start having all these big questions. And that's a big part of the legacy of the movie is being able to make high school kids, especially high school boys, very, yeah. very interested in all these like alternative realities about the world. Yeah. <laughs> There's also something to be said about the fact that a lot of the movie, well, as I say, like Richard what? Kelly has like pointed out the the he and I will say I like Richard Kelly a lot. When okay. he starts talking about this movie, it kind of gets nonsensical at times. Yeah, like, there's maybe way that. too much lore about yeah. the movie. <laughs> That he like wants us to be like an homage to comic books, but he didn't read comic books. But also <laughs> he he loves to do this big sci-fi action movie. The director's cut has a commentary on it that's him talking with Kevin Smith. And uh, honest to God, I'm still not 100% certain why that's the combo that they sat yeah. on. <laughs> but Kevin Smith's like, yeah, I, I mean, you're kind of right about this comic book stuff, and also not not really, but sure, like what you know, whatever. <laughs> never like read comic books like <laughs> but i mean like even so the name Donnie what Darko. Else does he do yeah and what? she even says like that sounds like a superhero name right exactly Gretchen. right yeah so the, yeah. he's he's weaving it into the movie it's just funny that yeah. he's like so confident in this but then after this movie comes out within a year spider-man releases and really kicks off the superhero boom in a big way i mean yes x-men yeah. had already been out there blade had already been out there there had been Batman and, and Robin movies before that, but ultimately yeah. it is Spider-Man shows up, dominates the box office, takes over the world culturally. That's within a year yeah. of this guy thinking, I'm going to write this like pseudo-comic book movie, and <laughs> he's kind of right about the direction Hollywood would be heading. Yeah, absolutely. He was one step ahead of the curve. What about The Crow? When did The Crow come out? Uh, Mid-90s, but... Uh, for those who know the tra- or don't know the tragic backstory of that movie, uh, Brendan Lee, who was Bruce Lee's son, dies on the set, and yeah. so he he using a prop gun gets shot and dies, and so that definitely stopped at least the Crow franchise from moving forward. Oh, that's horrible! I didn't know that. Yeah, cool. but so. With that being said, let's go ahead and jump into more of the production <laughs> of the movie, because that, that is a dark turn. For the... Yeah, turn there. <laughs> all right, go ahead. <laughs> all right, so back to the production of the movie. So first of all, they just say, okay, we got the money we need. Let's go ahead and shoot it. They have 28 days to shoot the whole movie. That includes the seven for Drew Barrymore. They're going to shoot it in Long Beach, California, to keep costs low. That way they're already in L.A. They end up shooting in the same neighborhood where Ferris Bueller's house is in the Ferris Bueller film. Right? It's, like, right around the corner. There's a couple other things I think are fun. One, there's the sequence where they go to the movie theater. I, Uh last year, went to L.A. and went to a movie theater, and unbeknownst to me, it was the same movie theater. 
It's the Arrow Theater mm. in Santa Monica, which is actually like a pretty big theater in that area because yeah. they get talent to come do Q&As there. Very popular little theater. And I'm watching the movie and I'm like, huh, that kind of looks familiar. And they zoom out and it says the Arrow Theater. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so... <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, it was kind of lucky. Um, the scene they shoot there, they're watching Evil Dead, so nice callback to an older horror film. The They got cool. the Evil Dead footage for free from Sam Raimi because wow. Drew Barrymore placed a call. So she's like, hey, Damn. Sam, can you help us out? And he's like, yeah, no problem. Here's the here's yeah. Evil Dead using your movie. So pretty cool <laughs> there. <laughs> This 25-year-old kid, like, it's just, like, crazy. Like, I would literally be like, what the fuck is going on, right? Like, I right, mean, 100%. Like, like and, everything is happening right. Like, what exactly. is she going to drop? Like, <laughs> well, so, let's see, he like, also... You hear, like, Ari Aster's story where he, like, tries a thousand times and fails, and then this guy, like, is, like, shits out. I mean, it's a great movie and a screenplay, but he just, like, is, like, and everything just, like, works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, d- different time for sure, but also being in the right place at the right time with the right people helps a lot. Right. And no, as you. we mentioned, you know, Drew Barrymore obviously could only do the one week on set, but her right. team is being is so heavily involved in the production that they start really oh. getting a lot of things to flow right. They're able to help yeah. the production designer get a get an actual jet engine from an aircraft for $10,000. <laughs> So, and what? <laughs> so they so they buy so they buy a giant jet engine and they drop it on the set and they only had it for one shot, so yeah. that shot had to work. So when you see that in the movie, yeah. that is the one take of that they got. Oh my gosh, that's um, incredible! Wow. Everybody before they buy the jet engine is like, this doesn't make sense that a jet would just fall like an engine would just fall off a, a jet. It's not how this works, Dude. Richard. Yeah. And while they're filming the movie. <laughs> In this one-month window, this happens yeah. for real in L.A. Wow. So everybody wow. on set heard about it. Everyone's like, whoa. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I guess <Yeah>. it does happen. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, when it's they... like literally like it's like the opposite of the Donnie Darko story. Like, yes, like some people literally. are kissed by tragedy and like Richard Kelly is not. <laughs> Uh, so they go to make the costume for Frank, who obviously is one of the iconic images of yeah. this film. I mean, Frank is creepy. Yeah, he, it's a good, it's a good costume. And he, it's heavily inspired by Watership Down, which mm. I don't. Okay, so to prep for this podcast, I only watch the director's cut. Do they read sure. Watership Down in the regular theatrical version as well? Because they do yeah. in the director's cut. I don't know. Is that the one that Drew Barrymore is like talking about? Well, she talks about the cellar, the the cellar door yeah. thing, but there's yeah. also a whole section where they talk about the rabbits. And no. that, okay, so that must have been in the director's cut exclusively. So yeah, he they literally reference Watership Down, which is a story okay. about rabbits trying to build a new home. Because one of the rabbits okay. has a vision of the future and sees that their home will be destroyed if they don't leave. Yeah. So, again, that's... Is that the horrifying rabbit movie that they made in, like, in the 90s or the 80s? Uh, they made it in the 70s, in the, in the late 70s. Oh. Yeah, it was, I, They showed it at after-school daycare, and I was, like, bawling and, like, so scared. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying. It's a, yeah. The Watership Down animated movie is one of the great animated movies, but yes, it's terrifying. It was literally so scary. <laughs> well, again, you can also see the the parallels. It's a story about yeah. the outcast rabbit who sees the future and yeah. tries to do something to change it before it affects everybody else. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, again, he uses this as the design aesthetic. It's a creepy-looking mask thing. They're like, there's no way this can get done. And then, of course, the costume designer's like, how about this? And he's like, that's just the Easter Bunny. No, this is what I want. And yeah, it's, just we eventually get what we what we see in the movie. There's also a very yeah. famous movie from the 50s with Jimmy Stewart called Harvey, uh-huh. where he sees uh-huh. a giant invisible rabbit. Kelly says uh-huh. it's not at all what it's related to, but Harvey was a huge okay. hit. So I would be a little yeah. surprised if I mean, there's even like a joke takes... about it. Yeah, like it was so famous in the pop culture that there's jokes about it in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 
So, sure. <laughs> like, it's not exactly like yeah. a small cultural thing at this point in time. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then, yeah, and then music ends up being another huge part of this movie. So, yeah, I know I love... Music new... is so good. <laughs> I was going to say, I know I love New Wave. What, what do you think of New Wave, like, yeah. synth music from the 80s? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, that, like, lo-fi vibe, like, um, I mean, I love, like, New New Order and stuff like that, so, you know, it's really cool. Um, I listen to it sometimes, there's, like, it's, there's, like, a resurgence of, like, all 80s music, and, like, that, like, lo-fi music is definitely, like, making a minor comeback, too. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure, and for me, I know this was my introduction to a lot of these bands, because they were not yep. ones that my parents had played out regularly in the house at this point. And sure. I know that they listened yeah. to Tears for Fears or they listened sure. to, you know, all, all these like Duran Duran in the 80s. Sure. But they weren't things that they played when I was growing up until I started right. hearing them. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we used to listen to that. And then all of a sudden it made its way back into the family rotation. So I know that the big one to me is the one shot where it looks like they're just going through the whole school that is like such a cinematic sequence where it yeah. just introduces you all the characters in the high school and yeah. you see all the teachers, you see Patrick Swayze, you see the principal, you see Drew Barrymore, you see Donnie, you see the new girl coming in. It is like such like a daydream vibe sequence set to yeah. Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels. Yeah. And again, Drew Barrymore <laughs> calls Tears for Fears and says, can we please use your song? They're like, sure, I guess. Wow. Like, wow. so Drew Barrymore is like throwing Dude. all of her weight into this movie. I know, right? Jeez. And she's in it for like, what, maybe like all of 10, 15 minutes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she killed that role, though. Honestly, she like stole the every scene she was in. She stole the scene. I would agree. 100%. <laughs> I definitely yeah. agree with that. Uh, there's also the sparkle motion sequences, which we referenced at the top. Uh, yes. Sparkle Motion is the band, or I guess the dance crew that his uh, little sister Samantha is part of, and yeah. there's a whole choreograph scene where they're dancing. That was not the song that they choreographed it to. They couldn't get the rights <laughs> to the Pet Shop okay. Boys song West End Girls, and so they were able to sub in Duran Duran to make it work. <laughs> Okay. What is it like the same tempo or something? Yes, essentially it's the same tempo. It's like whenever you see like those kids who put up like the mashup songs, where it, you're really just matching the beats per minute, and then you're able to more or less create something that looks the same. Oh yeah, and then obviously the other big songs for this movie are the Killing Moon at the beginning of the movie, which controversially is removed from the director's cut. They change its placement mm. in the in the director's cut. Okay. So Why? I don't I, I don't like that. I don't know. He has liked this other song more in the director's cut okay. as the intro song. But I gotta be honest, I'm not a fan of that switch. Okay. And then yeah. <laughs> the final song of the movie was supposed to be MLK by U two. And they could okay. not get the permissions to pass through. So instead uh. Gary Jules records the version of Mad World that becomes synonymous wow. with the movie. And Mad World wow. is a song by Tears for Fears, another one. But his like semi-acoustic version is more haunting, more in tune with the lyrics, as opposed yeah. to the Tears for Fears one, which is like extremely upbeat, according to Kelly. Yeah. He's like, this okay. Jules one is much better, so let's do that instead. And wow. they get the clearance to go ahead and record it from Tears for Fears again. I assume yeah. that was another Drew Barrymore call. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that that's kind of the production of the movie. So that's it awesome. goes out to release. Everyone's like, we're super excited for this movie. Uh, it plays at the Sundance Film Festival. Half the people there hate it. Half the people there love it. Nobody calls wow. them for, like, five months. Christopher huh. Nolan's like, yo, company that bought Memento, uh, go buy this movie, too. And so they do. Uh, the company in question uh, reaches yeah. out. It's a new market, buys Dying Darko a few months after Sundance. Mm. They say, okay, well, we're going to put it straight to VHS. And Drew Barrymore is like, the hell you are. You're not putting it straight to VHS. <laughs> yeah, You're putting it in theaters. Like... Right. So they go ahead and release the movie into theaters, and it makes half a million dollars. Wow. And that's it. Nothing. So the reason nothing. why, though, so they go ahead and they release this movie in October of 2001. It's a perfect time. Except. September of 2001, 
there was this little thing called 9-11. Oh, oh the... my god, and there's a plane! <laughs> yep. Yep. There's a plane crashing through somebody's house and killing them as part of Nidarko versus 9-11 was a month earlier. And so also, nobody wanted a, a part of it. Like, Apparently, not a good nihilistic, like, death, like... <laughs> and, and the plane crash sequence is in the trailers all the oh. way through 9-11. So when people oh. didn't know about this movie, they knew about that part of it. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> that's like, do you remember that, like, I think it was like American, not American Gangster, but it was like that, that movie right after the shooting in, in Denver or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was were... just, they went and like shot up that, and it was like, I went to the movies and it like saw that and I was like, oh, I think they should cut that out of the trailer. <laughs> I do remember you're talking about the one with God, it's not like American Gangster. You are right though. Yeah. It was yeah. the one with Josh Brolin and Sean Penn. Yeah. And there's like and they're like just have like Tommy gun shooting up a theater and I'm like, ooh, that's not good. It was Gangster Squad. Gangster Squad is the movie. Gangster Squad. Oh my god. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, no, perfectly fine. But so they released the movie, nobody goes and sees it. Everyone's yeah. like, shit, this did not go well. And then, the following couple months, it releases on VHS, and slowly, people start to pick it up. Those who are seeing it love it, and they start to evangelize about it. Perhaps the biggest thing was when it hit in the UK, it became a huge hit almost instantly. In the UK... Yeah, the stuff's huge, too, that music. Well, and so, specifically, the movie started to get so much groundswell there, that people start asking for the cover of Gary Jewell's Mad World over and over and over again. In 2003, it was the number one song for Christmas, which is a huge deal in the UK. Like a massive deal for their music charts. Which, that's the darkest song, other than Killing in the Name of, that's got to be their number one song in Britain. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it just kind of just keeps playing. The Pioneer Theater in New York started just left it in theaters as one of their midnight movies for two and a half years and the more people start to see it in new york the more they go back and they buy the vhs and they start spreading the word and slowly but surely it just percolates and becomes this cult movie and now here we are 25 years later and it or 20 years later and it's a huge hit yeah that's incredible do you think they ever made? Do you think they ever made their money back with like everything? They did for they sure did because the the reported number is that they've made over ten million dollars in just okay. DVD VHS sales. Wow! And that was like within a year of it hitting. That I mean, at this point, they've more than made their money back. That's not even counting like now they can probably market out the costumes and stuff like that. It's a pretty big budget for the early two thousands, isn't it? It is, but for an in, it's still an independent feature. Like it's not, sure. it's not crazy big. And okay. that was actually something that they said that was uh, an issue for them was that when they went to Sundance, mm. nobody believed they made this movie on that budget. It sounded too small wow. for what they pulled off. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, th- talking about like the, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit further, but like the special effects and stuff, like. Obviously, today, it's not the greatest. But at that time, like, I mean, it still holds up. Do you know what I mean? Because the movie's so, like, dreamy, it, like, feels, like, okay, even today, with, like, the, like, waves, the goo or whatever, and the, the... Yeah, the water waves. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's such a dreamy movie, like, it, it, like, kind of works still. Well, and funny enough, that whole idea was inspired by John Madden drawing little arrows on people as they're like running plays so (laughs) he's kind of imagined doing something like that where you're being guided by something that you don't Uh, even know is there like in theory like a player is later guided by the arrows that john madden is drawing yeah Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't he's the big football guy is he (laughs) no no rest in peace john madden yeah but so it was just very I think that the thing that I like the most about this movie, even to this day, is that it really did a good job of of committing to its time era and also like being weird enough and not 
being upset that it's weird or not being afraid to get weirder. Yeah, exactly. It's not being apologetic. That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah, and I think I think something that we didn't talk about, like that's really cool about this movie, is that like that there's so much like anti-conformity in this movie, but like there's so much pressure to conform. Like you have like Donnie Darko and Gretchen who are like sort of anti-conformity in that way, and then even the teacher who's like trying to get them to feel and trying to get them to like live their life. You know what I mean? There's such a pressure from like society that they fire her it's like anyone that steps out of line is like killed or goes through tragedy for even trying to like do something outside of the suburban norm you know what i mean well there's also the whole thing about the they call her grandma death the woman who walks back and forth from her mailbox yeah her whole thing is that she's trying to point out that the there's like this weird broken wormhole thing going Mm -hmm. on but because she is weird and out there and looks different Mm -hmm. nobody believes her and she ends up being correct yeah or you can even argue that the bomb suffers a lot from that that she does not want to conform to the way that the really weird teacher wants her to like embrace this extreme curriculum yeah no absolutely and yeah the mom sort of suffers because she is even vulnerable with her it's like listen you know i feel really lost right now and like this that and the other thing and she's in the the she like attacks her basically like for her parenting (laughs) you know what i mean like like anyone that steps out and is vulnerable or willing to like be emotional or like spread emotion or like try to do anything outside of this like stuck up like suburban norm is like shafted and like destroyed (laughs) so yeah and i will say special shout out to beth grant who plays kitty farmer she kills Mm -hmm. it as like the stuck up lady like character should not work and it does like it really works and it's very upsetting to watch yeah i mean another thing is like she's almost like out of the air she's like the only character that's out of the area she feels like she should be in that like 1950s like 60s like mom right yeah exactly she feels very much like a um like just the hyper conservatism that was sweeping Mm -hmm. through the 1980s because reagan gets elected on the backs of women who stop the the equal rights amendment from passing it was a a big deal that there was this conservative this big movement within conservative churches to have your women stop the Equal Rights Amendment. And wow. then on top of that, those women then go and turn and vote for Reagan. And she's of that mold, where she's somebody yeah. who is this hyper-conservative woman who believes that the kids are wrong, there's something wrong with kids right now, and yeah. we need to protect them from themselves. And we're talking, this is like a couple years before... Yeah you know, musicians get hauled in front of Congress to talk mm-hmm. about to talk about having the the parental advisory label on your music. Parental so, controls on yeah, the exactly. CDs or whatever. Yep. <laughs> so all of this is about the same area. There there's this at the same time that there's this progressive movement going on in the country, mm-hmm. there's also this heavily conservative movement going on back mm. to the Reaganism of it all. And what's interesting yeah. is that Donnie's own father is part of that Reagan establishment, even though yeah. his son is outside the norm versus the yeah. mother is just trying to find a way to let her kids get empowered. And there's almost like his own war going on within the family that they're just not talking mm. about. Yeah. What is the what is the line? Is stick it up my anus? Is that it? <laughs> I believe it was something along the lines of you told me to stick the- forcibly <laughs> inserted up my rectum. Yeah. <laughs> he told me to stick the book and forcibly insert it up my anus. <laughs> okay, the, the, official, the official line is he asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise card into my anus. She does that. That that is that is a line. That is a line from that movie that she does very well. <laughs> what's what, what's the better line? Is it that one or is it you can suck a fuck? 
<laughs> I mean, suck-a-fuck, that whole, like, fight is, like, another point where I'm like, okay, I get it, Mom. Like, the fight between the sister and the brother, that's, like, me and Haley, like, all the time. Like, <laughs> so, so, but I do think forcibly inserting it up the anus is, like, that's just so perfect. Like, it's, like, it just portrays the clash of culture so intensely, right? Like, that she can't say... Yep. <laughs> Alright, so one last thing I want to touch on before we jump into the awards is there is the director's cut. We've referenced it a couple times now at this point. Mm-hmm. I think that if you are a hardcore fan of this movie, you might enjoy the director's cut. Yeah. However, there are some music changes that I just wanted to make everybody aware of. Like we were talked about removing the killing moon from the opening of the movie, which I don't like. But yeah. you know, Richard Kelly is gonna do what he's gonna do. The mm-hmm. sound is better in the director's mm. cut, but okay. the movie overall is longer, and it has mm. random pages of the book that he's talking about, about the time travel book, mm. thrown in to almost create chapters. Mm. And so even though it's like 20 minutes longer, yeah. there's not really a ton of material to justify it being longer. And it more or less just holds your hand through the overall plot. So mm. I heavily suggest the theatrical version over it because mm. I think the ambiguity works better as opposed yeah. to trying to be told directly what you're supposed what to think that? about this. Because right. I think part of the problem with Donnie Darko is if you try to say anything is 100% true about this movie, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, <laughs> It has to rely on the ambiguity and the yeah. oddity of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It has to feel kind of like a superhero movie, kind of like a fairy tale. I mean, yeah, it's a fairy tale, and it's also ambiguous, and that's just you have to live with that. Yeah, it is a you can put your own meaning onto this. Exactly. It's a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale, though. <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> All right, let's hit the rewards. Okay, so uh, award number one, best kill. Uh, again, there's not really a lot no. of killing in this movie. I kind of threw in two best deaths that we can consider. Yeah. The mm-hmm. airplane jet engine or Frank getting shot in the face. Which one do you think is the winner there? Uh, I really like the end scene where he's, like, laughing. You know what I mean? As he's, like, about to die, you know, with Mad World playing. Yep. Like, I think that's a much better scene than Frank's death. Although it, Frank's yep. death is more cinematically important, if that makes sense. I agree with you, though. I think that mm. even though it, it more in the context of the movie wraps up who Frank is and why he looks the way he does right. and how he is going back is his like weird ghost self. Yeah. But I agree with you that I think that his sacrifice and him laughing and being like, they'll never know essentially yeah. what I'm doing here, yeah. that the mm-hmm. whole reason of all these bad things happening was because I am going to sacrifice myself. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I avoided death. I have to sacrifice myself to save the world. And mm-hmm. as as Kevin Smith pointed out in his commentary, the one really good thing I did glom from the movie is he sees the movie as a story of love because he comes yeah. to the realization that not only will he save his girlfriend, but also he realizes the plane that's flying in that the, his mother's, is his mother's his plane. On it. Exactly. So he's literally saving his own family in the process yeah. of being the person who dies. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the Marion Crane Gone Too Soon Award, there's only, again, three real options on this one. It's yeah. either Gretchen, Frank, or Donnie. Gretchen. I mean, that death is, like, heart-wrenching. I just, I love them so much. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess you have to go Gretchen, because, yeah. but I have a soft spot for Frank, because sure. he doesn't do anything wrong. No! <laughs> he just swerves out of the way to avoid hitting an old woman, and then happens to be a... Uh, a girl also in the road that he hits. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which, by I the agree. way, the uh, the other person in the car, just a shout out to one of our old episodes, is Fran Kranz, a.k.a. the stoner in Cabin in the Woods. What? Episode one throwback. <laughs> exactly. All right. How about the Tom Savini Award for best effect in the movie? I think, I mean, the the single-shot jet engine is pretty dope, but the water particles makes, like, if you sh- if you ever show any, like, anything like that, immediately you're going to think Donnie Darko. So what do you think? I think that you're right about that, that it is so unique. 
And yeah. I would also argue that the water particles, we see them kind of reaching out people's chests, and that is yeah. its own unique shot. But it's also creating those weird invisible barriers between Frank and Donnie. And yeah. I think that that is, like, when he's stabbing the wall, like the water yeah. wall, trying to get yeah. to him, I think that's one yeah. of the more interesting shots of the movie. Yeah, that is that is an interesting shot. It's also, like, the one of the creepier shots of the movie, too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that brings us to our next one. So we agree, water particles. Yeah, I think we go water particles because I think we can do we can give scared shit moment as that moment there maybe. <laughs> yes, because the the visions of Frank are the scariest scenes in the movie. Yeah, yeah, Frank is legitimately horrifying. Like, like so. it just gives you the sense of unease, and even when he's starting to control, Jake, like Gyllenhaal to go do the different things, it, it it's so ominous. I think the yeah. voice is so creepy sounding too. Yeah, that's true. The the voice is really cool. They did a really good job. So, I mean, that whole outfit. I'm glad we didn't have an Easter Bunny because like that is. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, I even like at the end of the movie where they show like Frank designing, creating his costume. Yeah, that was a that's a pickup shot that they did not originally have in the movie at Sundance, wow. and they added it into the movie. It's great. Yeah. Yep. All right, so then I guess the scariest shit moment would be, like, the first time Frank shows up. Would that be the yeah. the one? Yeah, we'll allow that one, yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, the biggest regret of the movie, uh, Steve Hadley Award. This has either got to be Frank for simply driving, <laughs> yeah. Gretchen for going with Donnie for being his girlfriend, sure. and then the mom committing to sparkle motion. She finally shows her commitment to sparkle motion, yeah. and her plane gets sucked into a wormhole. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. We gave so many awards to Frank. I think we got to give it to Mom. Like... <laughs> and, I mean, again, all she is, she only is there to try to care for her daughter. That's literally yeah. the only reason she's there. And it, by leaving, she inadvertently pushes her son towards his death. And yeah. then when he actually dies, the whole family has to deal with that pain. So, yeah, I think the mom gets the biggest regret. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, the Kurt Vaughn Award for Most Overconfident. All right, this has to be one of two people. Either Beth Grant as the uh, creepy freaking teacher yeah. who is obsessed with the weird program, or yeah. has to be Patrick Swayze, who yeah. not only runs that program, but has yeah. a child pornography dungeon. Pornography sex ring. Like, no, that definitely Swayze. Like, <laughs> Swayze, so, Swayze wins that. <laughs> so small nitpick with the movie, okay? Sure. Small nitpick. We know that Swayze gets thrown in jail. Because yeah. Donnie lights the house on fire and they find the ring, right? Yeah. In this past now, where he has gone backwards in time and stopped himself from dying. Yeah. What is Patrick Swayze? Is he just going to be able to get away with it? He's just like a pedophile now. Like, he just is a, like, hidden pedophile. Yeah, that's, I guess, the one piece where Donnie, like, living would have made the world maybe a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, except the world ended, so maybe not. <laughs> the world ended, yeah. Yeah. Well, did that? Okay. So, did the world end, or did Donnie's world collapse? Like, because his mother would have died. That's a great question. Yeah, his mother would have died. Gretchen would be dead. Like, it'd basically be his dad and his sister grieving the loss of like everything. You know what I mean? So, is it like? I always saw it as like a metaphorical, like the world's gonna end, not like actually, but like Donnie's world would be completely destroyed. So he has to decide whether he dies or he has to live in this horrible reality that he created. You know what? That is a convincing case, Ryan. I will agree with you that it would have been his world that ended, not the entire world. Literally sure. Ended. sure. I like that read on the movie more, frankly. Sure. And then Swayze is our most overconfident, and he gets away with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> For now. Hopefully he'll get yeah. caught eventually. Uh, the Norman Bates moment of the movie, this has to be Frank showing up, I think, at yeah. the... How about this? To, to, to specify it. I think Frank yeah. getting out of the car and being the person who ran over Gretchen. I think that is, like, the the more Norman Batesy moment of the movie. Yeah. Than him just showing up initially. Because he's yeah. ingrained through the whole movie. So while he's creepy no and idea. weird... He's creepy and weird, but you have no idea why he's there, who he is. But when you see him... And then Donnie shoots him in the face after he, like, shows that he has this hole in his face. Yep. Like, so, yeah. 
I have a quick question for you. Do you know what Frank's relation to Donnie is in the movie? Because I, I have an answer. I did not know this. Oh, I just thought I just thought he was a random guy. Is he a bully? No, he's dating Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh no, I lost you. You have to repeat yourself because I want to know the answer yeah. to this. <laughs> she, he is dating Maggie, dating Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. The sister. The older sister. Yeah. His, oh, she's she's dating. Frank. Oh fuck, dude, that would have been horrible. So Johnny, Donnie, if Donnie continues in this world, he kills his girl, his sister's boyfriend. He goes to jail. His mother's dead. His sister's dead. Like his girlfriend's dead. <laughs> like, dude, that's so fucked. Yep. Wow. Yep. Crazy, wow. right? Wow. And, yeah, and, and that is fucking crazy. And, and there's like a line about it at the party that Frank is late to coming to the party. And then oh, we see him driving in. Oh fuck, dude, that's that's so fucking dark. Like, yeah, this makes me like my stomach hurt right now. <laughs> Holy fuck! All right, uh, let's go oh, ahead and jump into the Mandy Award. So the Mandy Award yeah. is for the actor or actress or person involved yeah. in the movie that is at their absolute peak because of this movie. So yeah. our answers, really, there's four people in question that I. Yeah felt like pitching at you and you can tell me if there's anybody else you'd want to include the first yeah. is obviously jake gyllenhaal as diane darko sure. i also pitched maggie gyllenhaal as the sister yeah richard kelly as the director and writer of the movie or drew barrymore for all the things that she does on the side while also getting her small role in the movie and being able to go off and make other movies yeah so, i mean i think i think obviously drew barrymore still has like doesn't he have like a show and stuff like that yes, I mean, she's not she big, still has the like... show I would say she's more has been a cultural mainstay for 25 years, 30 years. I mean, yeah. really 40 years if you go all the way back to E.T. So yeah. I don't think this is her peak by any means. Yeah, and then Maggie Gyllenhaal, wasn't she in the Batman movies, the Nolan yep. movies? Yep, and, and she so, got nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and I I don't know anything that Ryan Kelly has done. So th that is the interesting thing about this, is yeah. I really like this movie, and Richard Kelly – you know, seems like a really nice guy. Sure. But he has struggled to do other things ever since yeah. this movie was made. He was yeah. able to direct two more additional films in the past mm -hmm. 20 years, and both of them bombed pretty hard. Uh, oh, so he's got three bombs, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so he also directs the movie Southland Tales, which is okay. this very – it's a very weird movie. People have kind of started to reevaluate it as like a secret masterpiece, sure. but that's also kind of what happened here. So yeah. I don't know how many times you can only have secret masterpieces. Yeah. Uh, but it was The Rock trying to make like a serious movie, Sean William Scott trying to make oh. a serious movie, and Sir Michelle Gellar trying to make a serious movie. It's mm. during a three-day heat wave – uh, just before a huge 4th of July celebration, an action star stricken with amnesia meets up with a porn star who's developing her own reality TV project and a policeman <laughs> who owns the key to a vast conspiracy. <laughs> it just sounds absurd. <laughs> It literally yeah. just sounds absurd. <laughs> it sounds super absurd. Uh, yeah. It had a 44% on Metacritic. Okay. It has a 5.3 on IMDb. So, okay. not great reviews, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but from what I understand, people have kind of come around on it and sure. like it more now than when it And released. I've never seen it, but that synopsis sounds, yeah. like, insane. And then <laughs> the last movie... That... It's like The Rock, like, you know what I mean? Like... Exactly. And then the last <laughs> movie that he directed is The Box, uh, okay. starring Cameron Diaz. And the mm. small wooden box arrives on the doorstep of a married couple, who, knowing that who know that opening it will grant them a million dollars if they kill someone they don't know. So I mean, it's a monkey's paw title. situation. Yeah. That's I mean, I don't know. I guess that sounds interesting. It just, <laughs> it seems like he starts to try to traffic in more yeah. obscure, like questionable, questioning philosophical movies. And yeah. he released the director's cut of Donnie Darko before yeah. he even made another movie. Yeah. So, He's theoretically in pre-production on a movie called Corpus Christi about an Iraq oh. war veteran who teams up with a wealthy business owner in Texas. Okay. But, I mean, there's nobody even attached to this movie on IMDb. Sure. I'm, I'm skeptical of the entire thing. So. Yeah. It, I think it's pretty clear that... Ryan Kelly. 
Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, that, that, that Richard Kelly is our Mandy Award winner. Yeah, that's a bummer, because this is, like, a really great movie, but this is, like, it. <laughs> yep, but then this brings us to our last one. Who won the movie? Is it Jake mm. Gyllenhaal, Richard Kelly? I'm throwing in Gary Jules, yeah. who wrote Bad World, yeah, became yeah. a number one hit, and then yeah. Drew Barrymore. Do you think that this, like, allowed Drew Barrymore to, like, show that she was more than just a movie star? You know, there's an argument to be had there. Uh, she is a producer on this film, so she can certifiably say to people, even today, that, yeah. hey, you know, you should trust me with this movie because I know what talent looks like, even if it doesn't hit immediately. In yeah. the years that follow, we may have something real on our hands. Sure, yeah. So there's, there's something there. I think, ultimately, that she can't win this movie because she doesn't have a big enough role... That's in true. the film itself, and then that also did bomb. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Gary Jules wins a lot here. Uh, I don't know. Richard Kelly wins, but like he doesn't do anything with it. So I think the person, I think it's really between Julian Hall and Jules. Yeah. I, I think that I think that Jules has to be the winner because yeah. he just he created a cover song. Yeah. And it was became the number one song in the UK. He still gets right. residuals to this day based oh, yeah. off of this. I mean, they opposed... literally played that song on the Gears of War. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you remember that? that yeah, you're, 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 you're 100% right. 100% yeah. right. So, so. I, I think that while there's a lot of, I mean, especially with, especially with somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal, who's had a long right. storied career, you could make the argument he wins this movie because this is his, arguably his first iconic yeah. role. I mean, yeah. even today, if you check his IMDb, it's on his top you know, four performances. Yeah. yeah. But at least all, for me, I, I, this is where I would know him. Like you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it helps launch a very long career for him. Yeah. So this does prove that he's a good dramatic actor, and then right. based off of that, he does eventually get Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would still argue that Jules is the true winner of this film because yeah. I don't know if we ever even know who this person is. Unless yeah. he writes this cover song that <laughs> yeah. that hammers Number home and, and hammers home the overall film as well. The the movie. Yeah, this that 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 yeah, that's true. I don't I don't even know if that this movie is this movie without that ending song. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? If they had, like, I don't know, something from Duran Duran or something. <laughs> yeah, no. If they had the U2 song, it yeah. still would have been sad, but I think that that song is so much more prescient and poignant that it's not a question to me. Yeah, All right. So that is Donnie Darko, the 2001 film, directed by a Mr. Richard Kelly. If you guys have any questions about other future films of ours, you can go ahead and hit us up at Bella Lugosi Pod on Twitter or Bella Lugosi Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also hit me up at the Alan French on Twitter. Ryan, what is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Keep It Spooky09. All right, we are also hosted by Sunshine Sunshine by the Sunshine State Cineplex website, Sunshine State Cineplex. Dot com. Uh, you can go ahead and check out all our cool writings and movie stuff there. Uh, I am trying to write as many reviews of all the horror films that Ooh. are releasing right now because we have a lot on our plate in that regard. Woohoo! Yeah. You're doing uh, great, AJ. Killing it over there. Doing the best we can. But anyway, if you have any other questions, shoot them our way. Uh, in the meantime, I'm AJ. I'm Ryan. Keep it spooky. Peace out. <laughs>